Welcome to the Change Makers series brought to you by the Primary Healthcare Program and Quality and Education Department. Please note that our sessions are recorded and will be posted on an unlisted YouTube site for shared learning purposes. If you do not wish your name to be public and have questions during the presentation, please feel free to email Nicole Farago at ahs.ca or Sabrina Singh at ahs.ca, and we will forward your questions to the presenter. Thank you. This is a special edition we have for, um, I think it's Christmas for Joanne Ganton as our, um, our, our, she's our patient and family-centered guru. Um, and the passion is everywhere, but it is pa um, Patient Family Centered Care Week. So we have a special edition this week focusing on really hearing about um, roles of caregivers from um, and, and how do you actually how do you actually fulfill those multiple roles and looking at it from patient perspective, provider perspective. And then we're going to start digging in on the system perspective. So um, welcome. My name's Margie. For those of you who don't know me, I work here in AHS and we do these um, we do these series uh, called the Changemakers, and they are just basically little snippets of uh, conversations that you can eavesdrop on. So I would ask that people put their if you're not if um, if you can put air, put your mics on mute mute so we can have it nice and clear for for everyone that would be great. Um, and think of this like you're sitting on the bus and you get to listen to a conversation. Um, and, but at the end of the conversation, you get to actually provide um, questions. So we do have a question board we'll be able to put up. We are recording this, so do take note of that. And if you're not comfortable with having your name up there, um, um, it may just do let email us and let us know because we do record them so people can hear them after. And our ultimate goal of this is to make you go, huh, that's it. We're not here to change all perspectives. We're not here to give you a whole bunch of tools. We're here to actually make you think about something a little differently. Um, and if we make you go, huh, that's kind of cool, then we've achieved our goal. So today we have a couple, we have three guests, um, but Darcy, you're not allowed to talk as much as you normally do. <laughs> there's, there's a challenge right there. I know, I know. So many of you might have met Darcy and Vicky. They've been involved um, with, uh, they've really been champions and been strong advocates um, for patient involvement and patient engagement. Um, they've been married for 35 years. They have two adult grown-up children. Um, I think grand dogs, is that correct, if I remember correctly? Yeah, and cats, yeah. And cats, and cats right, right. Um, and their generosity, as I said, they're so, they're so involved in, in the work um, of, of advocating for patients. And, and so Darcy is chair of the Patient and Family Advisory Committee in the HQCA. Um, Vicky is a member of the Alberta PACER team. And they both, you know, they're both involved in in committees and conferences, and they've shared their story um, multiple times and multiple ways. And I think my hunch is that every time you share it, you probably learn something a little different about yourself. Um, and so we're really pleased to have them here on, on our show. And we also have Dr. John Hagens. He is the Associate Medical Director for the Primary Healthcare Integration Network here in AHS um, and is co-director of the Scientific Office as well. He was awarded U of C's Outstanding Family Physician of the Year, which is kind of a big deal um, and kind of a cool thing. And he's uh, also a professor, uh, assistant clinical professor of medicine um, and really involved in rural medicine practice. He works out in High River um, and has been there for 20 plus years. So is part of the fabric of that community. 
So welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. So we're going to start with with you, Vicky, because um, you know we've heard Darcy's story before, and we've, you know, I think we've as people might have heard earlier, you're the more introvert in this relationship, um, <laughs> but you were a key part of this journey. So I'm wondering if you know, you know, if you might be able to share a little bit about what that what that journey was for you through your eyes, um, you know, as you know, as Darcy's wife, as Dar- Darcy's partner, as his you know, obviously closest friend over the years. Tell tell us a bit about what Darcy's journey was like for you. Okay. Um, So originally in 2014 is when Darcy was diagnosed with colon cancer. Um, He was scheduled in January 2015 to have the surgery. So on January 20th, he had the surgery and um, we thought things were okay, but they started to decline. Um, and then on January 22nd, he coded and was uh, brought into ICU. Uh, he was put into a medically induced coma. On February 2nd, he went in for his uh, third surgery within you know that period of what two weeks. So it started a snowball effect of actual fear because I had no clue what was going on and. Um, when he had coded, basically I was pushed out of the room and told to go wait in the waiting room. And right then and there, I'm like, no, that's not going to happen. I need to be where the action is, like what's happening to my husband, I need to know. So I just thought that was very um, hurtful, the fact that I understand that he is the person that needed to be taken care of, but at the same time, as his wife, I needed to be there to know what was going on. So anyway, we, in ICU, they took care of him. He was in the hospital for 71 days. He was released on um, March 31st. We came home, and that's when my role switched from wife to caregiver. Right. Um, now, it's interesting, because you talk about your role switching. Yeah. I, I felt... Uh, in the hospital also, I had to be his advocate, but once we got home, um, things were supposed to be set up for us as far as uh, physiotherapy and you know other things, and it didn't happen. So I had to be his advocate and get on the phone and make the appointments and you know be kind of demanding as to this is what we were told we were getting and we don't have it and why don't we have it? So then I had to be his physiotherapist at home um, trying to teach him how to walk all over again, you know, change his, change all of his wounds. And it was, it was frustrating because I don't come from the medical world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Although, I mean, as his wife, there was no way that I wasn't going to do it either. Right. So I was juggling the role of being his wife and being his caregiver and trying not to be too bossy. And at times I know I was a little too bossy. So it, it was it was a bit of a struggle trying to figure out what hat I'm wearing at what time. Well, it's interesting because you know it, there's there's a bit of an irony there in that, you know you you love him, and so therefore you're going to do the you you probably are the in many ways the best equipped to help him, you know really really improve and get beyond and be that caregiver. But at the same token, it actually takes away from your ability to be the person who loves him. It's a bit of a conundrum, isn't it? 
it really is. And I mean, I was also worried how that was going to affect our relationship because I mean, he had gone through so much and was dealing with so much at the same time. And would he be, you know, frustrated with me because I was the caregiver and telling him what to do. And, you know, he's, he's a grown man and I shouldn't have to tell him what to do, but at the same time, um, because of his, you know, memory loss and mobility loss and, and everything else, I, I had to, I had to be that uh, person. So what, um, <clears throat> so how did you, how did you deal with that? <laughs> how did you, how did you, how did you deal with these multiple roles you had to, you had to, you had to take on? I, you know what, I just, I I didn't really think about it. I just knew that I had to do it. And, you know, when I would bring him to our family physician, who is absolutely wonderful, I can't say enough about him. Um, he made sure that, you know, Darcy had someone to talk to about his mental health and, and what he went through. But for me, I'm not the type of person that will sit and, you know, talk about my problems. So for me, <laughs> believe it or not, my time Sorry. Okay. My time was <laughs> first thing in the morning in the shower. Right. That's, that's where I would break down. And yeah. Jersey couldn't see me. Yeah. And that's kind of where I dealt with things. And I know my family physician wanted me to go to see someone. And he said, you need to take care of yourself, too. Because if you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be any good to Darcy. So because I'm not the person to go and talk to someone i as silly as it sounds i joined a gym mm -hmm. and I had, I had that hour to myself where it wasn't about darcy it wasn't about our problems it was about me trying to clear my my head and that's how i dealt with it and then i got home and i put the hat back on and i just continued on you know, it's it's so interesting because as you're, you know, as you're just as you're framing, as, as you're telling me about what the stories, what the time was like, and I think that you know we do these, we have these transition moments in our life, and I think about say childbirth, and and you know when you think about when you became a mom, um, you know when you were in the hospital, um, if you had the the you know the baby was a patient and you were a patient in many ways, right? And right. so then, but then when you got home at least at least when I was here I was um when I had my my last baby here they did you know health um, public health came to your house to check on are you okay as a as a new as a you know a new mom even though it was a third time around as a new mom new dynamics in the family how are you feeling we just we check for postpartum depression as part of just how we operate right did you you know as I think about those like those those life-changing events that occur does that, did any of that occur when, you know, to, for you or any of those check-ins for you when you were, you know, in the hospital or, or heading home or with home care or anything? Um, no one specifically came to speak to myself. We had home care come in um, to deal with Darcy's wounds, um, but that, that was her focus was Darcy taking care of the wounds. He showed, she showed me how to you know, change everything and what I needed to do. But that was it. As far as as far as myself, there was no one that, you know, reached out 
and said, hey, like, how are things going? How can we help? How can we, you know, assist you? Do you need a break? Can we have someone come over for an hour? Yeah. There was nobody that reached out, you know, to me. Right, right. So, John, I want to get your perspective on this. Now, you've been, you know, you've you've been a provider in a small community for many years. So you've seen people go through, you know, this transition point. Tell, tell me what it's like for you as a provider when people have this, and this is something we talked about previously, and I, I want to highlight it here for the group, was about the inevitability. We will all go through this. This is a life event. At some point in our lives, we will all go from being in one role of a relationship with someone that we love and care for to another, and it will, be, it will become that caregiver role. Tell me a bit about how do you how do you deal with that in practice because you've seen it so many times as you care for families over the years and over the generation that cradle to grave component so that's a i mean that's a very powerful question um because as we discussed the other day this is an inevitability something that all of us will face um at some degree or another um in all aspect of our life. So we talk about my involvement in a, in a rural community, but being involved in our academic community, we have patients from Calgary, and, and, and I think we're all, we all share that same degree of vulnerability. And invariably, it involves a shift, a shift in, in boundaries. And what I mean by that is that I think primary relationships, right, they are inherently, and I think of necessity, they're emotion-based. So our important relationships with our children, with our parents, with our spouses. Um, and we take that and something comes in between in the form uh, of an illness. And now we're starting to relate uh, in kind of logical, concrete, sequential terms with this new piece. And when you talk about transition moments in life, as you mentioned, many of them are support-oriented. So people come over, they're, they're happy for you. They, they have a sense of how to um, support you, and it's positive. But I think that in society, we're not always sure how to address illness issues. We don't want to add to the burden, or we don't want to um, you know, move into a situation where maybe we don't know how to talk about it. So invariably there sends, you know, there tends to be a sense of, of isolation that starts to come in. Um, we focus, the focus then starts to become on the illness versus the person with the illness and the whole life context in which they're situated. So those become the challenges and those I think for us as primary caregivers it's really important that we have that awareness as soon as we, we see that, that experience of the illness for, for one member of a family. And I think Vicki um, really highlighted a number of those issues as she you know, um, shared that experience. So how do you, you know, when you have, tell us a bit about, you know, just really concretely, because I think it, sometimes it helps people to get really concrete of, what would that visit look like post-discharge for someone if, if they came into your office? What kind of things do you focus on? And, you know, what parts are in particular with the 
the you know the spouse the caregiver the son the daughter who tends to probably i imagine accompany someone on the, in the appointment so i would say that initially of course we're focused on the illness we want to ensure that they are safe that they are going to continue to heal and recover from this illness and we want to know what parameters need to be in place for their recovery so we would go through um, and highlight those those steps so a physiotherapy needs to be involved cardiac rehabilitation medication changes so that would be certainly a central focus I think from there we would always address um, who is in your life as a caregiver um, so we will talk to you know um, so let's say in uh, in Darcy's case we would make sure that um, we would know who is going to provide those types of follow-up who is the caregiver in the home environment and we would and I'm speaking maybe as much for myself I would make sure that we have a separate appointment booked at some point just with that caregiver and if they have children we would typically invite them to be involved either separately or depending on their age with um, with the spouse and we would really confront those those challenges what is this meaning to you as a family and sometimes it can be as simple as we have appointments in the city I don't drive in the city that's new for me um, some of those things that seem a bit peripheral become very central all of a sudden mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well and it's, it's interesting how you talk about confronting those challenges I think you know, when we often hear, you know, say for things like addictions and mental health and and spousal abuse, and, and that sometimes providers are scared to open up that can of worms if they don't have the answers. But it sounds like you're pretty comfortable if you don't have the answers. You just want to confront the challenges by putting them on the table. And I think that in some degree that is, you know, a core tenet of, of, of meaningful primary care is confronting the issues. And if we don't have answers, we have access to answers. We have access to resources, to colleagues, to uh, people. We can get on the phone and say, "Let's, um, you know, help me understand what kind of resources you have put in place in the past." One in particular that I think is very helpful. Um, Alberta has a very unique initiative with this called the Shared Mental Health Program, where we would have a registered psychologist provide time and come into our office so the value of that is to have somebody whose area of expertise this is come in and I always say really to our, our patients or the people that would be involved with this I would say you know you and I are going for counseling together it's not you um, just you you and I are going and we're going to bring this person in and we're going to find a way to provide some help for you and oftentimes that help starts with giving them permission to accept that this is going to be a vulnerability, that this is going to be work. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a hard thing for caregivers to sometimes accept. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you. 
Well, and it is about that role, that shifting in, in roles. And so, you know, I like how I like how you, you framed it's okay to not have the answers and, and just opening up and having that separate appointment. Um, so tell me, Vicky, what kind of things, so that's, that's, that's certainly one way of, of starting to address those, those issues of, of being a caregiver um, and that transition point. But Vicki, what kind of things were helpful for you from your provider? You know, I know, you know I've heard you guys both rave about him. So um, tell us, what, did, what happened that actually made it work really well for you? I think one of the things that worked well for us is that um, he, our family physician always welcomed me in when Darcy had his appointments. It wasn't an appointment just with Darcy and our family physician. It was the three of us. And he said that I am welcome anytime Darcy wants me to be in the room, I am more than welcome. And that made Darcy more comfortable. It made me more comfortable because at that time we were also dealing with the fact that during everything that Darcy went through, he had a lot of memory lapses and he couldn't re retain things. So just him knowing that I was able to come into the appointment with him made things more comfortable for him and myself. Um, I think also every time we went in, our family physician, you know, always asked us like, can I do anything else for you? Do you need me to do anything for you? So just knowing that we were able to um, just reach out for anything that, you know, we needed and it, it, it was fabulous. And just, you know, even little things like we went in one time and, and at that time, Darcy had only been out of the hospital, I think, oh, maybe three or four months and the flu was going around and our family physician asked one of the uh, MOAs to take Darcy and put him into a separate room instead of waiting with all the other patients so he didn't catch anything because he didn't want him to, you know, catch catch a flu considering everything he had been through. So, I mean, just little things like that, I, I think, helped us quite a bit. Well, and it's, you know, I think it's it's interesting as you, as you highlight it, it is those little things. It's how it makes you feel, right? Yeah. You felt safe. Yeah. Um, you know, and something I'm just reflecting on, I think about, and I know we talked about this earlier, and I do want to highlight it for people of, of where you've gotten to now as these advocates and the kind of relationship, I mean, at least that we see on the outside, and I'm sure you guys have your issues, we all do, but, <laughs> but um, you know, do you feel that the experience that you had very clearly together, what do you think that did for where you are now? Is it, you know, do you feel like you've gotten, you know, adapted in these new roles? Do you feel that you've become stronger? Is it just different? Tell tell us about what that journey was like, if, if you're comfortable. And if you're not comfortable, just say, yeah, Margie, I don't want to answer. <laughs> um, well, for me, it's been a challenge. Um, you know, it, it's funny how it, it all started because when Darcy was in ICU and uh, all the nurses in ICU as well as the physicians you know, they kept saying, oh, if he makes it, if he makes it. And I would always say, he's going to make it. Now, I'm, I'm probably completely naive while I was saying that, but in my heart, I truly believed it. Mm -hmm. So when he was in the hospital, I had said to my sister-in-law, I don't know why this happened. I don't know why we're going through this, but he is going to change something. And we got out of the hospital. We're still, you know, trying to recover. And I just happened to see on, on Twitter that they were looking for someone to go on the HQCA 
panel and I'm like, why don't you apply for this? Maybe, maybe you can make some changes. And long story short, we all know that he ended up getting on it and we've just gone further since then. And I think, you know, Darcy does have a, a voice and he's very passionate as well as I am. And I think the more patients we can get involved, I think we're not here to criticize you know, what you're doing wrong. We're here to say, here's what happened to us. Here's where we think, you know, it could be improved. And that's, that's our passion now. We just, we never want anyone to go through what we've gone through. And yes, I know things will happen because nobody's perfect, but if little changes can be made that people don't have to go through it, then that's, that's where our passion is right now. Right, right. So, you know, and and again, I've I've and I, I think back to a wise woman I work with said once that those struggles that people go through as part of their health journey end up making them the ideal health advocates and health supports for others. So that struggle, actually, you know, that that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? Like that. <laughs> and we we still have our moments. Like you think that you can talk about it without getting upset, and then. You say one little word and brings you right back to it. And you're like, oh, God, here we go again. Yeah, yeah. Well, but, but those moments are real, right? Like, and those moments are, like, I think I think that it, it is, a, it, it was, I was, I was listening, as I was listening to you describe the time, you have the dates, you can do it, you can go through it. And then you hit a certain point and that's where I think it was, you know, the, the emotion comes in. And, but those emotions are what actually drive us to become and how you, how you, it's how you, move forward with those is what I think makes you stronger. It makes you a great health advocates. Um, I think uh, Christina here put on here, and I just do want to echo this, is that everyone tries to make meaning of a terrible situation, and kudos to both of you for your work in advocacy. So I do have to echo that. Oh, thank you. I, I think when I hear that story, I think that, um, that really exemplifies the power of really um, providing care that, that really reflects what the family is going through and the family medicine piece. And when we talk about the family, I think it's also important when we as physicians have a family member with an illness that is changing uh, and has a potential to impact the family, and maybe not everyone knows what that looks like yet, there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, you know, there's so many variables, and I always find that you know, whichever, um, you know, if it's a family and it's one of the parents, the other parent is trying to be a bit of a martyr for the rest of the family and be strong and demonstrate that resilience that they might not be fully feeling. So they're trying to, you know, they're trying to protect the children. The children have questions. They're trying to protect, you know, their, their parent who is trying to, um, who is struggling with the illness and the other one who's trying to keep the family together. Other variables, um, because sometimes um, they're, you know, the parents are looking at potential financial uncertainty, you know, the unaffected uh, parent may be taking on more work, which leaves a little more vulnerability for the, uh, you know, the children. So very complex, um, you know, very complex situations start to really declare themselves. And one of the things that um, we do is, is I would give a little um, 
you know, I would give a little journal to the kids that we kind of kept aside, and you can pick these up really anywhere and say, you know, when you have questions and you don't know, if you don't necessarily want to ask them at home, you can ask them here. And the other thing I think that we really try to impress upon people is words like, um, that this is going to be work, that this is going to create a bit of a burden on the family. Those are words people are uncomfortable in these situations using because I think it invites feelings of guilt that somehow if I acknowledge this as a burden, then I am not doing my part or at least um, I'm failing in some way. But to acknowledge that this is going to be a burden on the family and for you, and that is not the fault of the person with the illness, it is the illness itself, and that is separate. Mm -hmm. We are here to provide resources to help with that. But I think sometimes that language is also important and that we address that up front so that um, people have an understanding of what this journey might look like as it unfolds. That's, you know, that's a really interesting point because it's setting, it's setting those expectations and again, putting this, the tough stuff on the table. Um, one comment we have here is that there are some hospitals that are looking to the PTSD effects that result after an ICU stay. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the question here is, is, is about what could be put after the journey, but I wonder, and I'm curious, um, are there, you know, from both of your, I'd like to hear both of your perspectives on this. Are there things that you could actually do? And I think that PTSD post experience, I think that's very real. Like I haven't, I'm lucky in that my family hasn't had those kind of events. We've had smaller ones and I can see how it would lead that way. But what kind of things could happen during that might actually reduce that, that sense of impact? And how about after? You know, John, what you're talking about is, is really setting those expectations for after. Um, maybe if you guys could talk a little bit about both of those, what do you think would really help in, in reducing the impacts um, of, a, of a traumatic experience? That's, that's a really tough question because both Darcy and I have experienced the PTSD and, mm. you know, whether it's going in bringing Darcy in for, you know, a CAT scan and they call the same code that they called, you know, when Darcy was in the hospital, it brings you right back there. Um, When he had the reversal of his ileostomy, we were on the same floor with the same nurses when he coded and they recognized us. And, and I, I honestly, I can't think of anything right now that would eliminate something like that. I, I don't know, but I know it's it's real. It's definitely real because we go through it every time we go into that hospital. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's 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 going to happen because it's a traumatic event. So how about some of the after effects? I mean, John, you identified about putting the hard stuff on the table, identifying that that it is going to be a it is going to be work, um, and then trying to figure out in a journey together of how do you address, how do you help deal with all those relational dynamics that occur. Um, what do you think or what have you seen in practice that really helps people manage that impact as they, as they move from that traumatic event into a caregiver and then be able to allow them to be successful? 
So, I, and I'm aware of that uh, that new information that's coming out. I think it uh, kind of validates what we've we've seen with um, patients who have been through those traumatic experiences. And and when I speak to patients um, who have had those experiences coming from ICU, um, one telling comment was, "This is the first time we really had to confront mortality in a really." tangential in a really direct way. We talked to other family members of other people who were there and this is where the really sickest of the sick are going to be. And it is a time when there's a, a lot of uncertainty and you are confronted with that mortality piece in a very direct way. And I think because often these events come up suddenly, they're unexpected, you don't have a lot of preparation for them. And I think therein lies part of that trauma. And I think when we see families after uh, you know a critical event like this, um, I agree with Vicky. It's a hard question, a hard one to find a meaningful answer for. However, I think we can always start by saying, "How has that impacted you?" And it's a, it's in, amazing to me how many times families will be silent and then start to break down and will recognize that that's a fairly significant impact and we have different resources that maybe we need to start considering putting into place. So I think just addressing that and asking that question has tremendous value. Yeah. Do you find, do you find in, in you, so you know, when you're, when you're teaching, when you have residents, um, how comfortable are people in asking those questions? How much fear do they have in opening that up? So I, I'm, I'm not sure how much it's related to fear and how much it's just not something we've been traditionally really cognizant about asking. And so my expectation is that our learners, be they medical students or residents, um, do address those issues directly. And we, we will have a discussion not dissimilar to what we're having here to preempt what those potential risks are outside of the medical care issues that we're asked to address that day. And we will uh, have that expectation that they do address that. So I'm wondering then if, so in asking it, and this is going to be a question again for you both. So Vicki, what kind of things helped build your resiliency? What happened afterwards? Like you talked about going to the gym, carving out time for yourself. That was really important. Um, you know, finding that, you know, finding that space for you, um, probably adjusting and, and recognizing that shift. What brought you? And, and so my question is eight. Well, actually, I have a twofold question for you. What kind of things built your resiliency and what allowed you to come back to being more of a wife than a caregiver or is that an assumption that you still have to balance both those roles still so tell me a bit, bit about that i think i i do have to balance um the caregiver role although it's not to the same extent that it was when he first came out of the hospital i'm still the person you know that will make his appointments make all these calls that need to be made um but i think uh starting to talk more about it um but I also had to take a piece um, of time where we didn't want to talk about it. 
because mm-hmm. we became known as well there's the family that you know had an adverse event right. we're, more, we're more than that um but i think we needed to have that that break so when you know just for instance our friends would come over and they would start talking about it and eventually we said to our friends you know like come on over but we're not talking about his illness <laughs> right. about anything right. else but his illness because that's all we were for the longest period of time yeah and and so that that was a bit of a struggle and and now it's okay to you know update them and stuff but we're not we're not now known to our friends that you know the couple with with the illness the adverse event right. <laughs> <laughs> what are you known as now <laughs> that's another story but... <laughs> Sometimes we're known as the troublemakers. Well, mostly guys. <laughs> so, what kind of things helped you build your resiliency? Um, I think just being stubborn, and and we were going to, we were going to overcome this, and we were going to get past this, and we were just going to try to get back to um, some type of normalcy. Although we'll never be the way we were prior to the illness because of what happened, but. We just, we're just forcing ourselves to just move forward. John, how about for you? What do you see as, as things that, you know, in the, um, in the role of a provider, what kind of things help patients build some of their resiliency? And it's probably, it's probably different for different patients, but, you know, over the years, what have you seen to be kind of some consistent trends that help? Well, you know, I really like what Vicki is saying that you have to, consciously redefine um, what is going to happen with um, with friendships and other really important elements to who you are as people so that you're not defined just by this illness and you're setting boundaries. So for example, uh, we have a patient who has um, is fairly young, has Parkinson's disease, and people aren't quite sure what to because it's so rapidly progressive and you need to take naps and and they say you know now we just say instead of not going out we say look you guys come here we're going to have dinner but you know he's going to go take a nap halfway through or we'll come to your place but we need a, a couch to crash on that you're not going to mind and they've made it something that's kind of lighthearted and they tease him a little bit about his, his napping and you know it becomes something that 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 is not centrally defined and I think patients sometimes need some permission to do that and one of the uh, examples so we have a patient who recently had a stroke as well and they are a, you know they are a, a couple whose kids have grown and left the home and they ranch and so her husband has to leave the hospital and tend to the cattle and he drives a long way and he drives a long way back into the city and all of these types of things, um, like Vicki talking about exercising or even going back and doing other things in life that you need to do, we always say, go ahead and do them, but we kind of add a proviso when we say you need to be able to do those guilt-free. You need to be able to go and go for a run and, and leave your husband or wife or partner and not feel guilty about it, not feel that you're abandoning or leaving them and I think that starts to allow them permission to build on that resiliency that Vicki has uh, has mentioned. Well, you, can I just yes, I, of I completely agree with the the 
that piece about feeling guilty because it, it was, it was like, well, how can I go out and spend some time on myself when he's home, not able to walk? Yeah. Mm. And again, he's somebody you love and care for, but. But the guilt piece is huge. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, what you're, what you're feeling there um, is that emotional connection, right, with Darcy that is central to your relationship. And again, giving people permission to realize that and having these crucial conversations, saying that you're leaving and attending to your own personal well-being is not an indicator of failure. For you as either a partner or a caregiver. Um, that is central to all of, uh, of, of this whole healing process which involves you as a family. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's, uh, you know, and I, I think I share this with both of you is that I come from an OT background and so we talk about how Everything you do in life has to, it, it typically falls within three spheres. Either you're doing things to care for, you know, yourself and others, your activities of daily living, you're doing stuff that falls into your productivity or your volunteerism, so things that make things of a, of a purpose role, or things for fun. And you always have to have those in balance. And if they're not in balance, you aren't well, because those multiple roles, you know, if, if your activities of daily living, and for you, Vicky, your activities of daily living and, and adding on increased so much. Just just living and getting through the day-to-day -day stuff took out too much of the other pieces for you to have that balance. And, you know, I think it's what I love about that framework in OT is that it says that, you know, it actually honors the, the caregiver because the caregiver also has to fulfill those roles and, and also has to have that balance. Yeah. You know, we say all the time, if you're, you know, if you're not taking care of yourself, you can't take care of others. And I know certainly, as you probably heard that as a mom as well, yeah. um, but it doesn't, you're right, it doesn't make the guilt go away. Yeah. So I'm wondering, so one comment here we have from um, Sandy, Sandy uh Burzins is is she was asking is respite care consistently available for family caregivers of patients receiving care in the community after hospital discharge, and what do people um, when they get discharged from hospital after major surgery etc. What do they do if they don't have close family to support them? So Vicky, did you were you able to tap into any kind of additional resources afterwards? And then John, what do you do when people don't have that support? Um, for myself, I don't think there was any any other um, avenues that were presented to me, so. Oh, interesting. So nothing else was there for you? No. Okay. And John, what do you, you know, so if, what would you, you know, what would you want, thinking, thinking to Vicky's situation, what would you, what would you try to tap her into, knowing from, say, your community what you have? Oh, you know, that, that's, that's a real challenge, and, uh, you know, we, when we're taking care of, of patients, um, you know, these are people you have relationships with. When I say, and I, and I say this to our, our learners that we have here as well, I say when we advocate for people, it's not always just their health, medical, social, or otherwise. 
It's also advocating for them in the context of the system as we uniquely understand it. And so in High River, for example, I know we would have respite beds available, but they're limited. And the need far outweighs the availability of, of that in, in my experience. And I think we talked about a difficult situation where you know, we had a caregiver um, who's, uh, you know, it was somebody who's, again, they were an elderly couple and their spouse had quite a rapidly evolving dementia, was becoming a risk to himself as far as wandering when it's cold outside, um, sometimes being confused and a bit aggressive, uh, leaving, you know, stoves on and burners. And we had a really tremendous wait time to access um, you know, these kind of care resources, a long-term care bed. And so I understand, and we all understand that those are, are real challenges, but when it comes to the safety of, of that couple and recognizing that by the time you have something like dementia, the other couple, you know, the couple tends to be elderly and you have limited capacity in the unaffected partner um, to begin with. And I remember one time having to have that conversation with them because they had no other resources and it was becoming a risk saying, I think your only option is to drive him to the emergency department, leave him there, let him know, let them know that you cannot take him back. It's a very difficult thing to do and I work in acute care as well so I understand that's not an optimal um, situation for anybody. At the same time, we also recognize that a bed will be available, care will be available, the risk in the home is no longer a risk. Um, they will be prioritized for a long-term care bed. And then the challenge is, right, the, the surviving or the, the um, unaffected partner is saying, what they're hearing is, you're asking me to abandon my spouse, this person I've been living with and shared a life with for all these years, and this is my last almost um, interaction with this person before they're hospitalized in a permanent sense. And it's a, it's a very challenging situation to be in sometimes with these. And, and we're all, you know, it's not advice you want to feel you have to give, but again, advocating for... Um, you know, patients is also advocating for them in the context of the system. And uh, I think we all have come to understand that those are sometimes system issues that add to the vulnerability of, um, of care in some of these situations. Yeah, it's, you know, I think Vicki and Darcy, you guys are lucky in that, you know, you were, you're both young and healthy. And I think there's a whole other, um, a whole other dynamic that comes in as you start to have, um, you know, certainly looking at aging parents and aging couples. Um, I know we're, we're coming close to our time and I do want to, I do want to give, Vicki, I want to give you the last word um, just because that way, because usually it's Darcy, so I'm giving yeah. you the <laughs> um, But I want to give you the last word, kind of just reflections and, and you know, what, 
you know, I know you've, I think in the past you guys have done letters to, to the health system, like dear health system, like this is what I want you, this is, this is what I need. I'm wondering what kind of some of your last reflecting thoughts are. Um, I think one of the frustrating things for us um, when Darcy was released was we were promised all these things. And then we get home and we don't hear from anyone. So we have to start from ground zero calling and getting everything that we were promised. And and I think, you know, when a patient has gone through, any patient has gone through some type of um, severe event, then I think to put um, added pressure on the patient and the caregiver is is not fair. I think when, you know, you're told your physiotherapy set up, you'll get a call, you know, either Monday or Tuesday, everything's set up, it's all good. Oh, home care set up, they'll contact you, they'll come in, they'll bathe them, they'll do this, they'll do that, he'll come in, you know, two to three times a week. I just, I honestly don't think it's fair to put more pressure on the family caregiver or whoever it is or the patient to be responsible to um, start demanding all these things that you were promised. I just... For us, it was extremely frustrating when we got home to to have to do all of that. Well, you know, I think you you really highlight something for me there in that there's times when the medical system has to act like a medical system and sometimes when it doesn't. And that first point out of care, you have to, it's it's like you got to mobilize. You got to be a medical system that can support people when they have that medical need. Yeah, like we were, we weren't allowed to be released from the hospital until he could do specific things, and we got to that point. But then, you know, six weeks you're home and there's nothing, and you're kind of starting from ground zero again. So, yeah, I, th- I yeah, I think if if they could follow through on what was promised to the patient once they were released, I think that would be really beneficial to everyone. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to say. Um... I want to say a big thank you, Vicki. I know it's not easy to share your story, and I know it brings emotions, and I know it's it's hard to be vulnerable. Um, but I think your your willingness to do so, <laughs> our goal is to always again, as I said, make people go, huh? And I think the 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 real the the rawness of it is to me what makes me go, huh? And it's not and and it puts your brain in a different space and thinks about what kind of things could be different. So. I really can't thank you enough for um, for being vulnerable, being a little uncomfortable in, in sharing your story, I know, with, with so many people, but I really do appreciate you taking the time. Oh, you're very welcome. But And I just wanted to, someone had put up at the very beginning a question of, do I wish I was not his caregiver? Mm-hmm. Um, I would never not want to be part of his caregiver, but I would have loved to have had more assistance is is what it is but because we've been married for so long too i just know that i know what he's like i know what he needs so i'm a great caregiver for him but some assistance would have been nice also right right wonderful well thank you so much and thank you john for sharing your perspective i think it it was a wonderful balance i think you've done you really do think of things in a very different way which I um which I I hope came through to people it certainly came through to me so I really want to thank you for your thoughtful thoughtful input 
No, thank you. It's, um, this is an important conversation piece, I think, and uh, really central to all healthcare. I'm going to ask all the folks on the line to stay on. We're going to put up a poll because we do always want to find out did it hit the mark, did it not hit the mark, um, what kind of uh, it, what, did it did it meet your expectations? So I think Sabrina's going to put that up right now. Yes. Technical difficulties. <laughs> One oh, second. Yes. I should have known that would happen. Okay. Hmm. One second. Oh, I want to present. Is it presenting? Can you guys see the poll? It says you're presenting, but it's... Ah, there. Is that showing? Can you click your presentation tab at the bottom? Um, for those who are on the line, if you wouldn't okay. mind just sending us a message, um, letting us know how you think today's session went, if you're unable to use the poll feature. Yeah, so down at the bottom you'll see Q&A and presentation, and so just on the left side, click presentation. It's just a real quick question. What did you get out of today's session? Pick one that best reflects your experience. Oh, it just flipped. Uh, did not do that. <laughs> Technical difficulty number two. There we go. One more time. It's a quick poll. How would you best describe today's format? Whether you loved it, want to see more panel-like formats, not really enjoy, or still like other styles. So keep coming in. So far we're finding this format most people like. Mm -hmm. um, if people have other styles and other um, and other Thanks, other things, other ways that would be helpful. Um, you know, feel free to email Sabrina and I. We're all we're we're happy to test and share and try different things. We do that a fair bit. We're we're batting around an idea right now about a failure lab. So could we start to share failure stories? We'll see where that goes. Um, we're also trying something called a one in ten, which is a one idea, one concept, one take, ten minutes that we will then be recording and sharing out for people that they can just listen to on specific topics. <laughs> So we're trying some of those. We'll look for those shortly. Um, okay, one last Sabrina, question. One last question. One last one. It's more of a, oops. If it lets me, of course. Last question. There we go. So go ahead and type or state one word or one line that describes your biggest takeaway from today. So it's a whiteboard here. People can just put anything on. You can have fun with it. You can add check marks on the right-hand side if you agree with someone else's statement. I think you can even add pictures, but I wouldn't recommend. <laughs> you may do something technical <laughs> that I, I mean, may I can not draw. be able to fix. <laughs> I see people are still typing, but I want to say thank you to everybody for participating and joining. We had 65 participants today, which was really exciting. And, and you know, share with your friends. Um, if you don't want to be on the distribution list, let us know. You can let Nicole know and we'll take you off. Um, but feel free to forward the invites to friends and just copy Nicole so we can make sure we continue to grow the, the, the list. Um, if we get to be too big, we'll have to probably look at different uh, avenues for sharing. But um, Thank you everybody for your input. 
thank you, of course, to our guests. And if you guys could, if our guests could stay on the line for a few minutes, that would be great. Um, so Darcy, Vicki, and John, if you could stay on, that'd be fabulous. Um, and everybody else, have a fabulous rest of your day. Thank you.